0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're revisiting our discussion on Paul and masculinity. And joining me to do that, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber?
1: It's going well. Thanks for having me, John.
0: And we have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London. How's it going, Grace?
2: It's going well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Valerie Nicolet, who is Associate Professor of New Testament at the Protestant Institute of Theology in Paris. How's it going, Dr. Nicolet?
3: Hi, it's going well. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your research on Paul's self-presentation?
3: I actually, it's been a little bit since I've worked on that, but I worked on Paul for my uh, dissertation and mostly on... Um, how Paul was constructing the self of his communities and so sort of his rhetorical strategies to do that. And so in, in sort of relationship with that, of course, it also mattered to see how Paul, uh, what kind of persona he wanted to present to his communities. And so I sort of continued doing that in my work in Galatian. And most recently, uh, I worked on a, on a piece where I look at his strategies to sort of shape what he wants to see in his communities and how his own presentation shaped uh, that that uh, that attempt and what he does with that. And so I used um, categories of monsters to actually sort of think about this.
0: Can you say more about that? The category of monsters.
3: Yeah. It it started with um, reading uh, a piece by Jack uh, Halberstam who talks about uh, the monstrous as a category to sort of. Um, understand uh, or queer self-understanding. And so I sort of looked at Galatian and what Paul does that may, might seem a bit surprising. Like uh, you, you you talked already about his uh, using the metaphor of being a woman who gives birth, which could possibly be perceived as being a bit um, it's definitely well. Actually, it's definitely perceived as being a bit weird today. I don't know if it was. It was not necessarily perceived as weird in antiquity, but today it's a bit bizarre. Um, and also, the way he talks about how he was received by the Galatians being disgusting, and they wanted, you know, they could have spit him out of the community. And so, all these aspects made me think of well, what what does that do to people that would hear this in the community? and possibly uh, not conform exactly to expectation of what you were supposed to be, to be a male uh, in antiquity.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder, just really uh, briefly, if if you connect... Uh, Galatians three verse one in with that at all, because in, at the very beginning of chapter three, you know, that's where Paul says it was before your very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Um, I, I follow a reading that, that basically says that what Paul has in mind, there is his own self presentation of like the stigmata that he bears on his body. There's a lot of connections that he draws between himself and and the suffering of Christ. Even in the passage that you just alluded to, where the Galatians could have spit at him, he says, you know, you didn't do that, but you received me as an angel, even as Christ Jesus. And so this kind of association of his weakness with, with um, a, a portrait of Christ, I'm wondering if you, you pull that in at all, or do you think that is p- possible?
3: Yeah, I've actually, I've, I've wondered about that, but I haven't really, I didn't really think about uh, the verse one, the one where he talks about Christ crucified, which which is interesting, but I did think about the fact that when he presents himself and he see, he says, "Yeah, you welcomed me as if I was basically Christ. And I think it can really work in both ways. It can work in sort of, of course, you know saying, despite the fact that he looked, or at least that he says he looked like he's disgusting, his aura or his embodiment of Christ is so strong that he is received as an angel. But it could also be, which I think that's also interesting, it could also be a way of saying this community is, embodies this sort of uh, hospitality in such a way that they're actually the one uh, performing real welcome. And so it says something about the community more than it says something about Paul. Or it can re- be read in both ways. Um, and I also think that this the stigmata allusion, um, which of course could be a reference to looking like Christ crucified. But there's actually a really interesting, and it's, it's, a, it's a fairly old interpretation, but uh, Hans-Dieter Betz in his commentary, uh, reads it as something that actually would reinforce Paul's masculinity. Uh, and he reads it not so much as suffering marks, but as saying, look, this is what I went through in battles, and I can show you my battle scars. And like if you're a real man, then of course you have battle scars. And that's sort of another angle that I also looked at to sort of see how Paul constructs himself as the ultimate male. And deconstructs the masculinity of his opponents, which of course sort of culminates in the famous you know you might as well just go and castrate yourself if you're gonna circumcise
0: yeah, that's a great connection and and um do you see however however we understand the stigmata, do you see that as kind of like alternative marks to circumcision like as part of this kind of like battle between like what what really are the sort of you know demarcations of our kind of community's identity, rather than circumcision, it ought to be the stigmata.
3: Yeah, actually, I haven't really thought about that, but it, it's interesting. Uh, it could be. I think it's really what what I find fascinating in Galatian is this sort of uh, inversion. Of course, Paul presents himself as the uncircumcised, strong male, while of course, probably. Uh, in fact, he was also a circumcised male. And then that sort of adds up to all this, this discussion Discussion also that you see in the ancient world about the value of the circumcised penis, which is for the Jews, like this is how it should be. But uh, the the Greeks are very critical of the circumcised penis, not because, of necess- but because it, it's a lack of, Control of your sexuality; it emphasizes pleasure and uh, this sort of disponibility to uh, sexual pleasure. And so, this sort of reversal that that Paul will, you know, defend the uncircumcised penis is, I think, really interesting. And but I hadn't really connected it with the stigmata. Maybe it is. Maybe you could say your virility depends much more on this than on a circumcised penis.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to pick up on that sort of tension in Galatians, where Paul is talking as a circumcised person that can kind of weaponize this rhetoric around circumcision to demean other people. Um, and we see sort of something similar happening in Philippians, where he's obviously explicit there as well about being circumcised. Um, so it's quite, I've always found that fascinating how it's kind of all Mix in and he doesn't seem to have a problem with moving between those different discourses. I wonder if there are any other ways that you see that happening in Paul's letters where he's kind of espousing one thing um, but actually is kind of drawing on slightly conflicting discourses to do with well maybe masculinity or gender more generally.
3: Yeah well I mean I was just thinking the sort of ultimate passage is um, in 1 Corinthians right where he says I, I make myself be all things to all people. And I think, I mean, this seems to be good, good rhetorical practice, right, that you would adapt in, the, in, in antiquity to your, your uh, audience. Uh, I'm trying to think if I see, well, yeah, I think the slave language, I think you, you talked about that, uh, is also a very ambiguous language. And I think it's really interesting that you see that in Romans, it's sort of yes, this is the inde- the identity that you should embrace, right? You should become slaves to each other. Your this is really you don't belong to yourself; you belong to Christ, etc. You have that whole sort of slave identity that you should adopt. And in Galatian, if you look at the uh, sort of the transition from the beginning of Galatian three to the uh, to chapter five really you need to reject the slavery identity and be free because you've been freed for freedom at the beginning of five one, And he starts this discussion by saying to telling the Galatian, well, you know, you're, you're no different than little babies and you need to become sons. And it's a very gendered masculine la- language there. Uh, I think there it's really about sons and brothers and not uh, something else. And so you have this reversal in in Galatian, where uh, slaves doesn't seem to be the identity to embrace, but something else. And it's also a letter where, in Romans, he presents himself very clearly as slave of Christ, as his sort of first identifier to the community. But in Galatian, he is clearly apostle and not apostle by human qualities, but by a revelation of God. So I, I think there is that sort of. Ease of moving around metaphors, depending on what he wants to accomplish with it.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think the enslavement metaphors are sort of similarly really ambiguous, and it's it's fascinating. Paul uses them in such a wide variety of ways, so it's kind of interesting how he moves between that. I think what fascinates me about his uh, becoming a slave of Christ is that that's a title that he has for himself, but also I mean we talked about that in one Corinthians nine as well. He's actually a slave to all as well. And so there's this kind of, yeah, clever use of rhetoric and this sort of use of quite a seemingly unmanly identity, but um, perhaps as part of a broader rhetorical kind of um, aim. But it's also an identity that gets offered out to other believers. So they, in Galatians, they're encouraged to become slaves to one another in sort of service of love. Um, and they're encouraged in uh, chapter seven of 1 Corinthians to become slaves to Christ. So I think I find the identity quite interesting in that way and that it's something that Paul kind of, can use and it bolsters his authority, but it also seems to have that currency among believers as well. I wonder sort of what your thoughts are on that.
3: And I think that's really interesting because I think he is uh, sometimes the, the community will take what he offers beyond what he had planned. And I, I think that's what I find really interesting with looking at Paul because you're still so much at the beginning of this movement. And I think there's a sense that they might not quite know what they're doing, and so of course you have uh, you have this language that has this potential. I think it's not, it's not it's not surprising that people have found transgressive and subversive potential in Paul's letter, even if, like uh, you also talked about on on this podcast, even if I think it's. Not super useful to depict Paul either as you know a feminist or this great forward thinker, but there is material in his letters that you can use to that effect. and I get the sense that if you look at what happens in the community, you actually had groups that went beyond what Paul had planned or and and took things. In directions that he was not necessarily comfortable with. I think one good example is the woman prophetess in in First Corinthians that seemed to have embraced this rhetoric, whatever it exactly was, of sort of uh, equality and possible freedom. And all of a sudden, Paul sort of realizes that this group has gone in a direction that he's not quite comfortable with, and so he sort of reframes and is like, okay, hold on. This is not exactly what I meant. We're going to figure this out in a more sort of normative or conformity with, uh, with the organization of the Greco-Roman world at the time. But I think, I think this ambiguity is pre- present for the community and they, they used it. I mean, today we would talk about empowerment, right? They're empowered to do something on their own, and he's preoccupied to sort of control this again.
1: I'm really interested in your comments about how Paul was received by the community, both how he presented himself and then also how the community received him in using the categories of monstrosity, which I think of, you know, otherness or alterity um, with those categories. And so I know that you've done work on Foucault. And I'm wondering if you've done any work with uh, Levinas um, as it pertains to that category.
3: No, I actually haven't. I haven't worked with Levinas very much, so I can't really I can't really answer to that. I've worked a little bit the 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 monster and monstrosity. I've actually sort of took the angle of looking at uh, trans studies, um, and I used an article. A pretty famous article by Susan Stryker, uh, where she talks about Frankenstein as a sort of metaphor to talk about her identity uh, as a trans person. And what I found, uh, I mean, it was pushing it a bit, of course, but what I found really interesting in Galatian is that moment where Paul talks about, you know, where, like, they have to put on Christ. And I mean, of course, if you read it theologically and sort of symbolically, everybody sees what it means, and it has sort of zero impact on your actual, like, embodied person. But if you think a little bit by, you know, what would it mean for a slave woman, for example, to be told, put on Christ, and you have this potential of Christ believers, you know, in drag, sort of. Assuming things that they couldn't do before because of that. And I, what, what I find interesting is that you see it in antiquity. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, we can possibly talk about Tekla, for example, who I think is totally a Christ believer in, in drag in some sort of way. Uh, and I think that it, it has potential today to talk about difficult uh, issues in the Christian churches surrounding gender, sexuality, identity that we can possibly approach uh, a little bit in a different ways if, if we open ourselves to the biblical text in this way, which I think would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear you flesh that out more, particularly the, the identity conversation in terms of putting on Christ and what does that do to our identity? Uh, yeah. What does that mean, and and our identity also in our particularity, right? And we're putting on Christ as as particular individuals. And what does that mean, and how does how does that work itself out? How is it appropriated and transformative of us?
3: I think for me, because I'm a New Testament scholar, sort of at heart, I I always my my relationship with the past is that. I don't think I find answers of course to my questions sort of, you know, one to one in the past, but the past helps me to think about problems today. And so, uh, if 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 I'm allowed to be a bit long, I w- I'd like to answer the question by by going back to the story of Tekla and then telling you maybe what how I see that impacting today. So Tekla is this Young woman who's supposed to get married, and then she hears about paul, and she's fascinated by her his teaching. It's a text from like the second century or so, and so she decides to not get married and I mean, it creates a whole stir, but at the end of the story, after a whole set of various adventures and it's very, very fun uh, to read, she goes to see Paul one last time and he approves of her, and she sort of sets off to do her own mission. And the text describes that she wears, she puts on the mantle of a man and takes off. And of course, it's just that little mention, but it shows that you have these masculine traits that are attributed to Tekla and will allow to do, for her to do something else. Of course, it's it's at the price of, you know, a life in the flesh and all that, but we can we can discuss that at some other point. Uh, but what I find interesting is that the ancient texts are much, much less static and fixed about sexuality and gender than what we sometimes hear in contemporary Christian discourse. Um, in, the, in the French context, for example, now we had this whole discussion around uh blessing of same-sex union, and there were some very conservative mostly Catholic groups, but some evangelicals as well, that very much argued that, you know, in the Bible, you have very clear male and female uh, roles, very clear understanding of what family is, and you can't possibly uh, think of blessing uh, same-sex unions in the church. And for me, what's what's interesting in looking at the ancient texts is that this This clarity just isn't there, and you have first of all, you have much more sort of space for people to to do things that in a christian in some Christian circles today would be perceived as sinful so that that I think is the first thing and then and then of course this the second sin the second thing, which is not a sin, but the second element is that I think those when you look at those texts with uh, focusing a bit more on what people uh, might have actually done and received in Paul, is that you see that it actually creates spaces of freedom. And if you don't read the text just as being addressed to uh, male in power, but you see them as addressing slaves and women and possibly children, minority, etc., then you see that the text could function differently. As much more as uh, spaces that respect diversity and different types of settings in in the world, and I think that's super important. And I think if uh, some of our responsibility, I think as teachers, is to show this diversity that the texts were not just addressed to male, uh, that of course became sort of the shaping force of Christian churches for for better or worse, but they were addressed to very different people and very different people did very different things with these texts and can hopefully still do it today.
0: On that point about lack of clarity in some of these ancient texts, um, I wonder if you could also talk about the Acts of Paul and Thecla there and and how Thecla at at the end baptizes herself, which is both interesting for auto-baptism, but also the idea of a woman performing baptism. I wonder if maybe you could speak to
3: that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great story in uh, in the in the Tekla uh, cycle. So she's uh, she's supposed to be a, or she's sent to be a martyr because she doesn't she doesn't want to renounce uh, her faith in Jesus. And basically, uh, the martyr is not so much because she's a Christian or a a, a proto Christian. But it's because the town feels like she's going to be a bad influence on other women. Uh, other women will leave their husband. And basically, it's a challenge to uh, the social institution of marriage, which is also interesting. And like the whole, all of the women in the town get, uh, are, soli- are in solidarity with, with her and even the animals. And one of her, she's fighting, uh, I think it's at that point, I think it's wild lions. Uh, And to escape those lions, she decides that she's going to throw herself in this sort of pool of water. But in the pool of water, there are wild seals that, of course, everybody is afraid that they're going to devour her. Uh, But she throws herself in the water saying that now it's time sort of that she that she becomes baptized. And she sees this sort of escape in the water as her baptism. And at the same time that she throws herself in the water, there is uh, lightning that kills all the seals, but of course spares Tecla and also in this this I think is the great touch of the text also sort of protects her nakedness because she's a martyr and she is really badass, but she can't be naked in front of everyone <laughs> that would not be all right and she does she she the this baptism is sort of recognized uh by by Paul, who had had sort of said that he was she wasn't quite ready to be baptized. So she takes matter uh, in her own hand, which I think does ask interesting question of which which community were behind communities were behind texts like that, where women could sort of yeah, auto baptize themselves. And then, of course, it also asks the question uh, we always, or we tend to think of the church as a male-oriented uh, institution, like who was baptizing these women if nakedness was a problem, if this sort of intimacy was a problem, who was doing it? So there must have been women who had this status in the community to baptize other women, and there, there there's something here, I think, there's a hidden history that's important. To put out out there and sort of make more visible,
0: because of course um, the earliest tradition of baptism, you would have been baptized naked, right? That's that's kind of what you're getting at, right? So the idea is that there needed to have been, or presumably there would have been, women who were overseeing the women getting baptized. Is that kind of
3: uh, possibly, or just that? I'm, I'm actually not really sure, but possibly also that if you, even if you were baptized with like a white robe, that the white robe would become transparent. I'm not. I'm actually really not sure. And also, I mean, if you think of full immersion, then it's a pretty intimate sort of moment. I think you see it actually. I think uh, the movie uh, Mary Magdalene does a pretty good job at portraying the sort of intense emotional moment of the baptism. And it's possible. I'm not sure. I haven't actually really worked on that all that much. But I think. It's possible that it would have been a space of sort of problematic intimacy between women and, and men in a, in a setting sort of went against separation, even if they were not actually naked. I, don't, I actually don't really know that. But.
2: Just to come back to something you said at the beginning, because you mentioned Jack Halberstam has been useful for some of your reading to do with monster theory. And uh, Jack Howerson's also got this theory of female masculinities. And I wonder if you find that a useful concept for thinking about some of these female characters that we get in early Christian literature and the sort of way that they seem to become masculinized. So Fettler is mm-hmm. quite a good example of that. Yeah, I just wonder if you find that a useful concept for reading these sorts of texts and if so, kind of how that's useful for you.
3: Yeah, no, I think you definitely see that. I mean, it becomes almost a topos, right, in martyr stories of women. Like, Perpetua and Felicity also have uh, a male uh, characteristic. And um, I, I think what I, what I found helpful was actually not what you talked about with Halberstam, but I find, I think it's Daniel Boyerin who talks about that and sort of insists, and maybe it's the same thing, I'm not sure, uh, insists on the fact that, of course, this sort of getting closer to the male pole. Of of gender. If you sort of go from the principle that there really is only one gender in antiquity, which is male, and then everything else is not male, Uh, getting closer to male or maleness gives you independence and sort of some autonomy. But uh, Boyarin also insists to say that it's at the price of any sort of embodiment. It's at the price of any sort of sense that you have flesh uh, so, women will have to renounce sexuality, which, again, in this first century, maybe in some cases was a good thing because you didn't run the risk of getting pregnant, and you could sort of uh, preserve yourself from that danger. But could also, of course, be conceived as uh, renouncing something that took away some of your some of your identity. We- Unfortunately, I guess we don't have enough, we don't have any reflection or not that I know, at least, uh, of women commenting on this loss. Uh, Because, of course, even texts about women like Perpetua or Tecla were probably written by male. So they also have sort of this ideal of, okay, yes, you can become a more powerful female, but only if you give up everything that actually makes you. Uh, a woman. So I think that that's also in, important to keep in mind. When uh, I've, at the beginning, when people, when um, scholars sort of read those accounts, there were some male scholars who were like, "Oh, these are really feminist texts," and really, I mean, they're not. They they show spaces where women could do or would acquire some power, but I mean, these women were probably rich woman, probably free woman, probably um, in the higher social ranks.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating to me that it's presented in ways that have power and femininity at odds with one another, uh, fundamentally juxtaposed, which, I mean, if we want to talk about kind of contemporary expressions in the evangelical church, that tends to be there as well. Um, that, you know, you can pursue the career, but it's going to be at the expense of having a family or having a husband or these other things. Um, there's there's that juxtaposition that's still very alive today.
3: And I think there's also this discourse. Um, I don't know how... I wonder if that has changed, actually, for a younger women in academia right now. But I definitely had the discourse... I think I had two types of discourse while I was pursuing my PhD. The sense of uh, early on that you had to do things like a man to succeed. And so, you know, if you did feminist studies, well, that was all right, as long as you could show that you also mastered everything else that male uh, forefathers did. So that was one thing which I hope I feel like that discourse is, has sort of disappeared. I mean, that was at the um, beginning of the 90s, so it's it's been a while, I hope. But the other discourse that I find sort of is more of an undercurrent is this idea that you're going to miss on the most important years of your children when they're young. Uh, you get that a lot, you know, oh, but these are such precious years and uh, they, go by, they go by so fast. And I think that that is also a sort of perverse uh, discourse of saying, by focusing now, I mean, but the first year of my PhD, my son, I think, was in daycare from, you know, nine o'clock to 5 p.m., the poor thing, and he was just a couple of months old. And this discourse of, oh, you're missing on the best years or the best, you know, moments, and you will never get it back. I think has a very uh, is a, di- a very difficult discourse to hear uh in some ways, and it I don't know if it's more prevalent in the church, possibly it is a little bit yeah that you you can't reconcile being a good mother and and uh, being a successful uh, professional.
1: I think it's very very much alive and well <laughs> yeah. um. But even with scholarship, like you were saying, referencing that earlier discourse in the 90s, there, in some ways, there can still be an idea of if you want to be a respected scholar, you almost need to sound male in your work, right? I remember one time when I was in my master's program and we never had, it was a master's in philosophy, it was definitely more on the analytic side. And so we never had women uh, who we read or, you know, teachers or anything like that. And we read a lot of these journal articles. And um, I remember one time um, at the class convened, I was the only woman in the the degree program too. the class convened and um, the guys were like, Oh, man, did you read this such and such article? It was really good. And I was totally shocked to read it was written by a woman, you never would have guessed. (laughs) And that was just such an interesting moment for me, because I thought, yeah, I, I kind of know that tension myself of I I need to sound like male, you know, in order because scholarship is male, you know, and feminine is fluff or non-scholarship. So I need to kind of divest myself of that in order to participate in this world. And that's some I would love to hear how you've kind of navigated that, because I've thought a lot about what does it mean to bring myself as a scholar to the table? and recognize the fact that my embodiedness is giving me a particular uh, perspective and way of looking at things and insight, um, and that's enriching the academy. But I'd love to know how you've navigated that throughout your career.
3: I think you made a really good point, the the last point you did. I mean, it it is enriching to the academic academic world that we come with uh, everything that we are. And I think that's where I, I finally uh, landed, is that idea that, um, I mean, I, I defend, of course, the necessity of feminist approaches, not just for ethical purposes, which I think was sort of the, I mean, when, when you read uh, Elizabeth Schuster-Forenza, that, that, that was really sort of her motivating um, Force, and I think it was is was very important, and it is still very important. but I think a lot of uh, young uh, scholars, young female scholars today will argue, and they argue correctly, I think that it's also because it makes for better research because we ask questions as women or as people that come from a marginalized uh, perspective or that are just not, say, white, male. Uh, Occidental perspective. We ask questions that are different. And so we will see things in scholarship that are different from what other people see. And so, I mean, this sort of repetition that you see, and I'm sorry to say this, but the Pauline world is is so marked by this, where people will write the same books over and over and over again. And so when you have a scholar who comes from a different perspective, of course, they will, they will just by who they are do something different. And I think that's, that's really important. I think it really took me a while to embrace this. I I haven't, uh, I think it's only actually fairly recently that I've sort of assumed this much more explicitly. I think it's because we're, there's becoming, it's becoming more current I mean it's more it's becoming more familiar to people that there are people who do that and there are more women in the field even if it's we're still in the minority but there are still there are more women in the field Uh, so that has helped a lot of course community just people that go through the same things that you've gone I mean when I started my PhD program I had quite a few very good female professors but very few of them were married and even fewer had had children and my colleagues and i i think my female colleagues we all had kids during our phd program uh, so just that fact i think <laughs> makes a big difference that you realize that yeah it's possible and what i think is interesting and i don't know if that's, uh, i met quite a few phd uh, students actually in um, in switzerland and they had I mean, I, I think I was really, honestly, if I think of it, I was really proud that I did my PhD and had my kids at the same time. And when I was talking with them, they were like, well, I really don't want to sacrifice my, my motherhood like, for my PhD program. And if I have children, I'm not going to pursue my career because that's too much of a sacrifice. And I thought that was really interesting because that's definitely a discourse I did not hear and it was precisely, she said, that that young woman exactly said that. She said, well, I don't want to be the woman who, you know, drops her kids at 8 a.m. at daycare and picks them up at 6. And I was like, yeah, like me, really? <laughs> Which I think is really interesting. So I don't know what she's going to do. but And I don't know how prevalent that discourse will be either uh, among younger uh, PhD students. But I think for me, really, to answer your question, how did I navigate it? I mean, it was, and, and this is, it it was community. It was just finding the right people that could sort of be in there with you at at the same time. And that was super, super important.
2: Thank you for sharing that. It's really powerful to just hear your story and a bit about um, how you've uh, navigated your sort of academic career. And I was just thinking about, I wonder whether the this current year is going to press some of those questions further with this kind of, Yeah, very strange circumstances we've all found ourselves in. And I'm sure we've all seen the research about the fact that um, submissions to journals, I think across the board, actually, in different disciplines um, from women have dropped during the pandemic. And so this kind of question of reconciling childcare and um, scholarly research has been kind of exacerbated in the last few months. And I've sort of been trying to reflect on how do we not pretend that this year hasn't happened and almost just try and do business as normal? How do we actually take stock of the fact? we've been through this kind of yeah really sort of difficult year together and recognize that people are human and have lives beyond their work I wonder if you have any thoughts about how we how we really wrestle with that going forwards in terms of measuring academic success so that we actually take stock of this year properly and reflect on the fact that yeah some people are not going to be able to put in their journal submissions as they might have hoped in 2020 and hiring committees looking at applications need to have that kind of broader sense of someone rather than just their CV?
3: No I think that's a great question I think it's a very important question and I think that there is such a tendency and I completely share into that to just you know feel like I just have to do as if nothing happened I mean we just i'm I'm also the the dean at my um at my school right now, and so when three weeks ago when we went back in full lockdown uh of course we all scrambled and decided that we were gonna switch everything online and everything and we had had we had been able to meet in person before that and there was not a second where i paused i thought Maybe the goal is not to reproduce everything online, just, just like we do in real life. No, I mean, we were all super proud that, you know, all our classes are online. Everything is just like the offer is just exactly the same as, we were, as if we were in present. And it really took me three weeks to sort of stop and be like, is this really a good thing? Like, was this really such a smart move to be all so proud that we're doing everything as if nothing had happened? And I I really, I don't know. I can't. And I think that the part of the problem is that I don't see when we can take the time to sort of reflect on that. And also the question of, like you said, what, what, what makes a good scholar, and how do you sort of evaluate that? Not based on publication lists. And I mean, just from my small experience in academia, of course it matters that you can research well and that you write well and that you're int- and that you have a passion for what you do. But it also matters so much to have colleagues with whom you can work, especially in small institutions. I mean, we're seven at my campus, and if among those seven one of them is like this brilliant overpublished person but you can't talk to him or her then that's a disaster for the institution and so i i don't have a good answer to this question but i do i do wish that we would think about the human person a bit more and i think we this is still we're still struggling with our sort of enlightenment Heritage, right? That the scholar is this giant towering figure working by himself and writing these amazing books. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, somebody said, you know, that Newton discovered the law of gravity, right? During the last pandemic. And I was just like, okay, but he probably didn't have kids or a family or just even, you know, some sort of life to live. So I think perhaps part of thinking in a sort of postmodern world that has gone to the Enlightenment. And God knows, I'm not, I don't want to call into question all of the heritage from the Enlightenment, because I think that the current last American presidency has shown how important the Enlightenment is, but we, we do have to change that. And I do think that uh, more sort of, that, that more diversity in the, in the academic world will eventually bring that about. I really hope so. I actually was, somebody was asking me about what gave me hope. And I actually do think that the feminist movement gives me hope. And the feminists out there, they really, they give me hope, even if they do things differently than what I would have done. But they give me hope. So,
1: I think that's great advice also for current PhD students. Um, Grace and I just both recently finished our our dissertations, or our theses, and she submitted, I'm soon to submit. And I've been reflecting a lot, you know, the voices and, and how you're taught to be a scholar and those, and the pressures and those sorts of things. And you're right. It very much is a, you know, you have three years to write the thesis, but also you have to get, you know, at least five journal articles and you have to get at least two book contracts and, you know, an edited volume or whatever in order to be competitive Mm -hmm. on the market, um, and, and realizing going through the process, um, how I struggled and, and felt the burden to, to not lose my humanity in the process, right? Like I'm not just a brain on a stick that's producing words all the time. Like I'm a living being that is embodied, that is spiritual, that's relational. And I, I don't, I would hear so many stories of PhD students who would finish their PhD program and have this great CV at the end of it. Um, But they were in therapy for three years after that, trying to recover themselves, you know? So yeah, I I think your advice on the way that we evaluate scholars and the way that we evaluate the scholarly life to being more holistic and being healthier and more well-rounded, I think is, is going to produce better scholarship. And I think a lot of the feminists have been the ones to recognize that and to draw attention to that as well. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
3: No, I, I I agree. I was actually um yeah, I was thinking of one thing that the, the the fact that I've I've reflected often, especially this year, because this year has been a little bit crazy, of course, and, and being dean and so I've had to do everything that the dean does in addition to the pandemic and all that. And there were days where I was like, you know what, I'm doing everything that my male counterparts have done for so many years. And I'm doing all, it, all of it. And then I have my periods, too, on top of that. <laughs> it's like, just for, I mean, just that reality that, of course, we don't really want to talk about, I think, is, makes such a difference. I mean, that, that fact that as women, uh, we can't really forget our bodies in the same way. That sometimes men can or maybe they can't, I don't know, but it feels like men can or are taught to forget their bodies in ways that we really can't, uh and of course, oil oh, well, pregnancy is also a very powerful reminder of that <laughs> you you can never be uh as a woman, you can't be a brain on a stick because that's just not possible uh I think that's important, and I think that's an important uh experience for per scholarship um, uh, as well, in fact, yeah. And it does, I think it does give um, better academic um, production. But I also wanted to say that, I mean, I really, uh, I know this is going to sound like it's going to make me feel sound and feel so old, but I really would not want to be a PhD student right now. I think that's, I mean... Uh, And and also just so that, I don't know if that's going to make you feel any better, but it took me seven years to complete my PhD. So (laughs) I'd say if you finish in three years, that's amazing. (laughs) And I did not have a CV that was, I mean, I did, I I don't think I presented once at a conference before I had passed my comps and done my proposal. So I do think that the, the job market has gotten so much tougher and that it's also at the price i mean there are certain things i realize now now i've been uh, in i am well i defended my I, I received my phd 10 years ago and it takes it i mean we always tell our students that theology is a long time it takes a long time to become a theologian and that you need to take that time and i i think it's the same to become a scholar i'm sorry you have it takes time to sort of mature and sometimes I mean like i took this was very privileged, but I took six months last this year where I was just reading because I was preparing an article on a topic that I really wasn't very familiar with, and it took me this i mean it it was just reading I didn't produce anything and <laughs> but I feel like I've grown this year as a scholar so much more as a result of taking that time. And I think that, yeah, I just hope that the, the the academic world can still see that, that that it is important, because otherwise, I think we are going to lose something very important. And possibly we're, we've already lost it. I don't know. I hope not, because that would be really too sad. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you make a great point of the connection between time and scholarship. And I, I don't know if it's just a modern post-industrial era where we're so focused on production. How much can we produce per unit of time? And success is when you're able to accelerate production. And, and we forget that scholarship is something that does work in us. And you can't just accelerate that like you could, you know, a factory that makes bottles, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> that time is this component that you can't extract from scholarship. It's like a necessary ingredient to it. So it's why we talk about a seasoned scholar, for example, because the difference between a seasoned scholar and a genius, it, you know, a prodigy is, is the seasoned scholar has had years uh, and, and you can see the difference. No matter how great the young prodigy is, you
3: know. Uh, there's a very comforting that that really helps me during my PhD a lot. Maybe I, oh, I overused it a little bit, but uh, you know, when in his history of sexuality, uh, Foucault yeah, famously right, he wrote the first volume. He had like three volumes planned out, and then he stopped. And it took him forever to produce the second and the third one because, and he eventually never actually finished the fourth one. Because in the process, he sort of realized that, he says that at the, in the preface, that he had realized that he knew exactly what he was going to write before writing it. And then it didn't make sense to write it anymore because he wanted to learn new things when you write. And he said, sometimes the process of research is that You start from a point and you go on this huge like trip and you hope that you're going to come come back completely changed or maybe have a different topic or whatever. And you realize you come back and you haven't changed and you haven't really changed your topic, but you've gone through the process, which means that you will have a a different perspective. And I think that that is such wise words. And I, I just actually, I, I, I started writing this article in March, where had a very clear, uh, I had very clear directives on what I needed to be doing. And I seriously used from March till now to sort of go around and try different ways. And I started writing the article like five or six times. And I've I've written, I think probably in total, I must have written almost 100 pages, but never finished it. <laughs> and then I started again uh, just three weeks ago and realized that I needed to do it exactly the way that I was going to do it at the beginning. (laughs) I needed the six months of going in circles to realize that and come back and be able to write it in a way that felt like it was mine. And that, I mean, that, yeah, that is just the way it is. It's
2: good to accept it, I think. So we've reflected a lot on embodiment and how do we shift the goalposts around like what is successful academia. And there's kind of different ways of talking about that in terms of like, yeah, knowledge production, but also like who counts as a scholar and so on, and potentially sort of what that might look like in a kind of post-pandemic world as well. We need to think about how the production of knowledge um, might be a bit different to how we've been treating it sort of pre-2020. And I think something I find exciting about masculinity studies is that it helps to press some of these questions. we often treat gender in relation to biblical texts as a sort of women's issue, but actually, masculinity studies help to sort of broaden that out a bit. And I think what excites me about masculinity studies is it reminds us that gender is not something that just pertains to women, but actually, we need to kind of uh, use that lens to look at the male figures in biblical texts as well. And I'm wondering how you find that exciting for for reapproaching biblical text.
3: That's a sort of ongoing discussion between masculinity studies and feminism, right? That, of course. It's not just about the woman, but that it also opens way to different types of masculinities and that there is some diversity there as well and that this uh, diversity needs to be taken into account and that that then again, I think, produces a better scholarship. And what I find interesting, the best uses of Paul is when you can sort of Move those uh, boundaries and play with concepts uh, I was I think it's uh, Elizabeth Castelli I was saying that to John that uses gender slippage as a as a notion and I sort of of like I sort of like that I like the idea that you can highlight moments in the texts where you have gender slippage be it of how women uh, are Portrayed, but of course also how male are portrayed. And I mean the fact, just for example, the fact that Paul presents himself as unmarried, as uh, celibate, as uh, all these things could could be something that uh, could question his sort of male or masculinity uh, level, I guess, in in antiquity. So I think that that complexity really has to be has to be brought out. It's really not black and white in any kind of way.
0: Well, this has been a very rich and wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicolay, for joining us and, and sharing some of your thoughts on on both Paul and his self-presentation, but also how this kind of fits into the broader scholarship on Paul and, and elsewhere in the New Testament. So just very appreciative of, of having you
2: join us today.
1: Yes, I very much enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much, Dr. Nicolay, for all of your insights that you shared with us.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. Thank you for having me, it was a pleasure.
0: If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.